I've discovered something while we've been in quarantine. It's a phenomenon that I have now coined a term for, uh, and it is called the quarantine 15. And it is how many pounds I have put on due to all the chocolate and beer that I am consuming <laughs> while I'm trying not to be depressed about the world. Excellent. <laughs> Do you have to stick to 15 pounds just to make it rhyme? I refuse to step on a scale. So you can't gain any more? I don't know, but it's, it's quarantine 15 rhymes, so it's going to, it's it sticks. I, uh, I, I got a rowing machine nice. a while back and I haven't been using it very much. So I was like, right, I'm going to. I'm going to build an incentive, right? So I'm, I'm going to do 3,000 meters, otherwise known as 3K, over the course of, no, 30K. That was it. 3K was a bit easy, huh? <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, th- 30K over the over the course of two weeks. You're never going to do that, let's face it. All right, wait, how do I? Uh, you know, well, fighting talk here. <laughs> it's, about, it's about 2K a day. How long does it take to row 2K? About 15 15, 20 minutes. That's it? I'm quite unfit, though. Okay. When are you starting? Oh, I, I've started. I'm, I'm, I mean, I haven't done mine today yet, but I've, I, I'm two days in. <laughs> two days in. Okay, so if I start, I'll be two days behind you. Oh, you've got a rower. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. I'll do it, too. We'll do it together. I mean, my thing was that I'm going to buy an iPad afterwards. That was my gift to myself. Oh, my gift to myself will be I can fit in a pair of jeans that I fit in, like, just a few weeks ago. You can s- see your feet. <laughs> yeah, I'll see my feet. <laughs> Well, I got dressed today, so that was my achievement. Oh, amazing. Have you done a grocery run yet that is solely junk food? No, no. but I, I ordered an Amazon Prime pantry order that was purely junk food, so it'll be here in a couple of days. Because we ran out of junk food, so I had to do a run this morning, which involved, like, <laughs> I understand that I'm overly cautious about this. I'm okay being overly, overly cautious. So I, you know, put waterproof trousers on. I put a waterproof top on. I, I secured the ends of the, uh, of the sleeves. I put a a mask on and a waterproof thing over that. Uh, And then I went and stood in line uh, to go to the supermarket solely to buy Sour Patch Kids, chocolate, crisps, popcorn. This is how you know how much these things mean to you because you're willing to like risk your life for a packet of Sour Patch Kids. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I came back, I basically just disinfected my, my entire body. <laughs> it was, it was a little bit supermarket sweep and a little bit like Mad Max or, or like Hunger Games this, this morning. Unreal. Clash of Worlds. Yeah. I was, I was defensively using my trolley. <laughs> defensively. <laughs> Defensive use of a trolley. If we had show titles that were phrases that were pulled directly from the, the show, this episode would be called Defensive Use of a Trolley. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, let's talk about the other big news, the fact that we're number 14 on the entire <laughs> podcast list in Moldova. Woo-hoo. Thank you, Moldova. I was bowled over. Population of 4 million, don't you know? Oh, Moldova. I got to tell you, one of my one of my absolute favorite countries is is Moldova. It's just, <laughs> you know, the, the rolling hills, the wide open plains. It's a beautiful, beautiful country. And, you know, if you haven't been to Moldova... You should go. The people there are so kind and so sweet, and have wonderful <laughs> taste in podcasts. Um, yeah, just, just fantastic. Uh, Rue, what what language do they speak what? in uh, in Moldova? Oh, in Moldova, they actually speak Romanian. If you can believe it. Oh, oh you did get it right. Yeah. Okay, oh, I thought you were going to say Russian. No, 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 no. Come on. Air on the. 
you know. Are they are they part of the European Song Contest? So, uh, sorry, are they part of the European continent or union? Which did you ask? No, Eurovision. The the most important of the Euros. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Mo- Moldova has participated uh, 15 times, debuting in 2005. Nice. Yes, yes. I don't know why. Why are we testing ourselves on, on, on Moldovan <laughs> trivia? It's like it's like you, you're acting like no one knows a ton about Moldova. This place is it's amazing. Yeah, uh, I mean, their best result was in 2017 when they were third. Yeah, oh. that was that was pretty yep. good. Uh, in in 2005, of course, they they sung Zobd Z Zvub. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's correct. I don't know whether you pronounce the the, the Z on the front, the Z. Oh, I said Z. You did say Z. Z. How about that? That's weird. Oh. Are you okay? I once said vase and my wife slapped me. Vase, yeah. A vase? It's, it's, like, a, don't, it's a... It's a don't talk like an American. It's not vase, it's vase. You can say vase or you can say vase. Vase. It's vase. A vase, yeah. What the hell is a vase? <laughs> vase. It's something you put flowers in. Oh, no, that... <laughs> Where's this conversation I don't know. You, listen, I don't know. I think we just include all of it uncut as the intro and then, then we go. <laughs> yeah. This is what uh, self-isolation does to you. Yep. I think we need to move on. We've been talking for almost 27 minutes in, uh, and we've on, we've talked 60% about Moldova, <laughs> 40% about coronavirus. and. So Watchtower Weekly is a, is a good one this week. It is. This is the good news special, which I'm really happy that we're doing this because yeah. usually it's just, here's all the terrible things that are happening in the world. But yeah. we're, we're, we got enough terrible things, so let's, let's do some good news. Uh, all right, so first up, from TechCrunch, WhatsApp introduces new limit on message forwards to fight the spread of misinformation. Uh, So in WhatsApp, you can actually forward messages to other people. And WhatsApp is imposing additional restrictions on how frequently a message can be shared on its platform in its latest effort to curtail the spread of misinformation. The Facebook-owned instant messaging service said that any message that has been forwarded five times or more will now face a new limit that will prevent a user from forwarding it to more than one chat contact at a time. They have already rolled this change out to users worldwide. Uh, The end-to-end encryption on WhatsApp, which the company is fighting for in several markets, prevents it from reading the content of the message, so it relies on metadata of a message to gauge its spread. Is all forwarding bad? Certainly not, the company wrote in a blog post. However, we've seen a significant increase in the amount of forwarding which users have told us can feel overwhelming and can contribute to the spread of misinformation. We believe it's important to slow the spread of these messages to keep WhatsApp a place for personal conversation. I think that's neat. That's a neat idea. I I definitely think it helps. Uh, Have you seen in every place that you look online now, like Instagram, in the App Store, uh, on Twitter... Like they all have these banners. I'm not sure whether it, is, it exists in the in the US or whether it's just something that the, the UK are doing. But everything has a banner at the top that says, "For more information about coronavirus, head here," and it and it sends you to a link uh, for us to the NHS. But this has been like I think it was the chief medical officer for the UK was on the app store as a card and uh, tapping that sent you to a video that looked like it was hosted by the app store uh, that played in line. And I just thought that, that nothing like that has ever happened before. Um, and, and so I think these these types of changes that, that tech companies are making to stop misinformation, this event has, has actually spurred them on to doing a few things that they must have been thinking of before this. They must understand why the forwarding of messages is so dangerous. And, and I think this, this change has come a little late because, I mean, there has been massive misinformation spread about coronavirus. And especially in the UK, around the, the lockdown and all the things that the UK are going through at the moment, that there, there has been misinformation spread on, on WhatsApp. So I, I think this is a, 
a quick response to something that has happened in the short term and, and maybe has happened in a few other countries as well. But um, all, all these tech companies coming together and, and providing this information almost at a level above uh, their service, I think is, is really nice to see. Yeah, I agree. Have, have you been getting that? Have you have you seen anything in the App Store or on Instagram? Or? Certainly in the App Store, yeah. But yeah, that is, it's, on a, it's on a crazy amount of services. I just think having that information above the kind of content level, right? It's at an app level. Massively helps with like misinformation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, what else we got? Google has backed or is backing Apple's SMS OTP standard proposal. Uh, So Google is now backing a standard proposal by Apple engineers in January to create a default format for one-time passcodes sent via SMS to users using the the two-factor authentication process. It's not the best authentication, uh, two-factor authentication process, but, you know, some standards there will still help. Uh, The standard proposed by Apple engineers working on the Safari WebKit project has now reached the status of official web platform incubator community group specification draft. (laughs) Try saying that several times Uh, fast. Yeah. Um, The proposal aims to fix some issues with the current state of SMS uh, OTP codes all of which have different formats, unique per the website sending the codes. In January, Apple engineers came up with the idea to structure these messages uh, and have the same identical format for all SMS 2FA uh, operations going forward. Uh, this is, of course, you know, to their benefit, really, right? Because they're reading the two-factor code and suggesting it in line, and they want to be able to read them better, I'm guessing, just in case your, your website is six numbers. <laughs> and they, and they accidentally fill in the wrong one. Use one password for two FA. Don't don't use. <laughs> don't yeah. Use, yeah. Don't use SMS. No, don't don't do that. Yeah, that's fine. It's great if they can make it better. Good. Sometimes I like to send people six numbers just every now and then. Oh, that's mean. Just send them six numbers just to see if it messes up with their <laughs> filling process. What what they're doing right then. <laughs> Matt, that's fantastic. I like that. It doesn't work very well. It does work sometimes, though. Do you just get a message back being like, is everything okay? (laughs) (laughs) Anna, do you want to tell us about Apple and Google partnering on some COVID-19 contact tracing? Sure. Yeah, this is pretty cool. So across the world, governments and health authorities are working together to find solutions to the COVID-19 pandemic. So to protect people and get society back up and running. So in the spirit of collaboration, Google and Apple are announcing a joint effort to enable the use of Bluetooth technology to help governments and health agencies reduce the spread of the virus with user privacy and security central to the design. Can we appreciate how dystopian the world is by someone saying the virus and us all knowing what they mean? Exactly what that is, yeah. The virus. Oh, it sends shivers down my spine, that did. Yeah. I mean, basically what they're doing is they're helping, right? Contact tracing is always going to be super manual. It just is. Like when you're reliant on it so heavily that if you miss one person, that person spreads to another 100 or whatever the, the R number is there. It's nice that these things can help and it's nice that they can get together and, and do things so urgently, but it it is just an enabler. It's not a replacement. I've been reading up a lot about contact tracing because it is quite interesting. It's one of the things that you're like, wow, how would they even go about that? But it's exactly how you think. It's, a, it's an incredibly manual process. But in using things like Bluetooth, you can then see, you know, how many other devices that's come into contact with and then how many devices that someone else has come into contact with. 
So they're basically going to enable Bluetooth-based contact tracing by building this platform into the underlying functions. So kind of all you have to do is opt in rather than actually update it with any information. Yeah. And again, like... I think this is the most private way that they could possibly do this. It's not using location data. It's not sacrificing a whole bunch of your privacy. Obviously, the the work back from this could be dangerous. But I think, to be honest, it's a necessary thing at the moment. But yeah, it's cool. Apple and Google are partnering on this sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They just need to involve like Samsung as well and some other device makers. If we can get a standard going here. It will be much more useful. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Or build it into the underlying Bluetooth itself. And then, like, can you imagine how many Bluetooth devices you bump into on a daily basis? Right. Like headphones and fridges. Oh, fridges. Oh, God. Yep. Yep. Uh, All right. Last one. The Register is reporting that Apple creates a face shield for health workers, resists temptation to call it the eye mask. (laughs) This is, I, I think that this is really neat. Apple is the one that I've seen. I imagine that there's others doing the same. I mean, I know there are other companies doing the same, but like very quietly, it seemed all of a sudden there was instructions on Apple's website for how to assemble your face shield. Apple has designed a face shield to help health workers stay safer when working around the coronavirus. 20 million of them will be shipping pretty soon. Anyway, Apple did a nice thing. They're they're making face shields uh, for healthcare workers, and uh, they look like they're pretty straightforward to put together, as one might assume a face shield would be. It's quite interesting that they've used their existing support like obviously they have a set company style and a set like documentation and yeah they've gone to town on everything that they normally would for a normal product and yes what it shows is that there is a broader section of the company getting involved rather than like someone just saying hey you as our manufacturer know how to create these masks just go ahead and do it right and then we'll ship them to the right place it's actually it's been a concerted effort across Like there's a downloadable video guide, there's a support page, there's assembly instructions, there's like an actual fairly unique design has has gone into this. So it's it's really nice to see that the whole spectrum of their product teams come together for this. Yeah, they pulled it together really quickly as well. That's the part that really, uh, as like a like a supply chain nerd, that I am I'm kind of like geeking out on a little bit. It's like they had to change some things over pretty quickly to get these things into production. Mm. And and maybe it's not as difficult as I'm imagining it, but like. What were they making yesterday that now they're making these face shields? You know, like it's it's very neat. Yeah, it's really cool to see the world coming together on stuff like this. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so Anna, do you want to talk about the Animal Crossing swag? Because uh, I don't know what this is or... Have you not seen on Twitter? I, 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 I don't know what this is. I, Animal Crossing is one of those games that we've talked about so much in the last couple of weeks that we've just like... It's just go to a place, knock some trees down and, and hit some people with a net, yeah. right? Like, no, it's doing chores in a video game, and I don't need to do that in a video <laughs> but game. But everyone is playing it right now. You two might not be, but everyone is playing it. It does seem like everybody is playing it. I don't care. <laughs> okay. But this is a little bit of good news because our designer, Benji, created some one-password swag for Animal Crossing. So you can grab yours from the Able Sisters kiosk, apparently. Those are words. Yeah. I don't know what that means either, but it's pretty cool. It's pretty cute. If you want some one password swag, go on to Animal Crossing and Oh, in Animal Crossing. Yeah, yeah we, we can't give out swag at the moment. Yeah, I mean this is easier to come by than the actual physical one password swag, right? Yeah, because I can't get to a post office. No. So in addition to our Animal Crossing swag that you can get on on our uh, Twitter account, we also have our blog has been putting up a lot of stuff uh, lately about working from home. Because I mean we are a 
remote first company. And so we've been doing this for many years and putting up a lot of articles about the different types of things that people might encounter when they're working from home and some of the challenges that they might run into. There's a lot of good stuff there. So you should hop over to blog.onepastor.com and, and check out our work from home series. It's it's pretty good. Yeah, I feel like everybody's publishing that type of content at the moment. Yeah, but ours is the best. Though. <laughs> Something that we've wanted to do for a while to, to talk about. I'm so glad that we're putting this information out there. I hope it helps people. Yeah. Who's our guest interview this week? So I spoke to James Linton, uh, who has quite the history of uh, sending prank emails. And, oh, really? Yeah. I mean, he managed to, to prank the White House. Just the list of people that he managed to... Uh, I'm going to call it spearfish because that's what it really is. It isn't really a prank. It is spearfishing. Uh, everybody knows that this is wrong. Uh, but he changed his ways. He now works in security. And so, yeah, we, we had a good chat. Joining us today is James Linton. You may know him by his alias Sinon Reborn, the email prankster who tricked an incredible number of and notable figures back in 2017, including Harvey Weinstein, uh, Eric Trump, Anthony Scaramucci, Ann Coulter. James now works as a threat researcher, social engineer, and speaker. Uh, so welcome to the show, James. Nice to be on. Yeah, it, it's good to speak to another human that's not in the house. <laughs> now, you've had quite the history. Uh, so let's start back at the beginning. Can you tell us what you were doing before all this and what initially motivated you to start this emailing hoaxing adventure? Yes, uh, definitely. I mean, for my whole well, classes now, my previous career, I was a digital designer. So I designed websites, um, kind of marketing emails, some brand work ad banners, things like that. So I guess I kind of had a bit of a background in the psychology of, you know, not necessarily just colors, but messaging and kind of uh, the slightly coercive ways of advertising. So my love of psychology kind of built upon that, I think. And, you know, I, I love my career. I worked as a freelancer. I worked at really well-established and well-known companies. But then there was a, a point maybe, it's probably about five years ago now, and I just didn't get that same buzz from it anymore it just i'd kind of to use a slightly corny phrase i felt like i'd fallen out of love with it I'd, I'd enjoyed it that much to then feel this kind of complete ambivalence to it was something that i found really hard but obviously coming up to 40 financial commitments dependence and stuff it's hard to step off that career ladder and start fresh somewhere else so i think my head was searching around for something to do but it hadn't really found an ideal vehicle for that to take. And it was purely by accident that, that I created my own vehicle. Yeah, I think sometimes the nature of being a designer is exploring this kind of stuff. Like I have absolutely, and I'm a designer as well, I did, you know, back in university, do the whole getting the letterhead from the university and writing a few letters to my flatmates, that type of thing. I, I think it's the nature of looking at something and thinking, oh, I could really easily recreate that. <laughs> yeah, I think creating hoaxes and stuff is is much easier when you can kind of disassemble stuff and and then reassemble it yeah completely and i have this very i guess it's almost algorithm like the my way of viewing at things possibly because i'm autistic but it does create this kind of series of building blocks that it can kind of switch around and interchange and i think it was kind of this constant, to be honest, it was quite tiring, constant mentally turning stuff over and thinking at it from different angles. That I was just sat there one day and I was looking at the Gmail interface that we used at work at the time. And obviously as a designer, I knew that things were becoming more 
pared back, things were trying to become personalized, you know, go like, hey, Dave, or something like that. It wouldn't say a full name and then uh, the email address. These things, the technical bits were starting to regress backwards, which it's hard to find an argument for. People would, if it was there perpetually, I think people would just blank it out anyway, uh, mentally from, from seeing it too much. But it kind of dawned on me that the only thing that was making an email authentic to a recipient was the name at the top of it and the content i thought well if you match the tone of voice and you match the display name then somebody wouldn't have any reason to question what was in it so it was that kind of little nugget i must say at the time i was blissfully unaware of the level of the use of this type of stuff in cybercrime. Not being uh, an employee that was sort of outwardly facing, my email address didn't really attract a huge amount of sort of enterprise phishing or things like this. So once I got some to my personal email address, I was I was kind of discovering all this um, without having all the knowledge of, of that behind me. So it was quite interesting how essentially I became on the same level as what a, an email scammer criminal would be doing. I was obviously not doing it for malicious reasons, but yeah, it, it just seemed a huge flaw in the kind of email framework that somebody could say they were someone else. And then it was very much down to the recipient to try and spot that. Yeah, I really can't believe that in the world that we live in today, a lot of email clients still don't have, like I, I use the Gmail web interface because it does provide some kind of, this person has the same name, but it's not the same email address as you usually email. There's nothing in a lot of email clients, like absolutely no protection against that type of thing. It's just, it's reliant on you looking. Yeah. I mean, mail, you know, Apple have a huge share of, you know, email management and and built apps and they've now made it harder. It's now, I think it's two full clicks to get down to the sender's email address. It, It used to be just one. So they're actually making it trickier to interrogate the emails you're getting through. No thought at all for the kind of security of uh, a deceptive email coming into that. They've kind of uh, washed the hands of all of that type of stuff. And, you know, maybe that's the the right thing to do and leave it to the experts. But, yeah, the the technology or technology in general, I think, has to do as much of the heavy lifting as possible. That's the conclusion I came to after all my kind of escapades and some exposure to the industry. I I can't see any way that technology can't be at the forefront because otherwise you end up with an unusable email system that you're constantly paranoid to use. So for for those who might not know, could you walk us through a few of your kind of well-known pranks and how they were achieved and how did you choose your targets? The first one which kind of got the ball rolling, the first kind of proper prank, because I'd done a couple at work made up a Gmail account that purported to be our CEO and sent a few account handlers various um, <laughs> various emails telling them they'd qualified for the intercompany games in Israel and there'd be swimming contests and uh, general knowledge and all this stuff. And at the time, I was kind of sprinkling in little phrases that our CEO used just to keep the kind of signature of the entire thing semi-believable. And this one kind of backfired on me, though, because I turned around in my chair. Uh, We have a a gantry which goes across to where the CEO and the CFO used to sit. (laughs) And the lad that I'd done the prank on was walking across his gantry to thank the CEO for the opportunity that he's just given him. So I I panicked a little at that stage. I could see the CEO's face kind of screwing up a bit and kind of just looking completely unaware (laughs) of what he was being told. Luckily, he didn't kind of dig too deep into what I'd done. So I, I knew that it had potential as a kind of prank device, I guess, a kind of virtual custard pie in in some respects. So taking that, 
at the same time running concurrently with this, I was also struggling a bit with the high street bank that I used at the time. And it was reaching a stage where I call it kind of corporate ghosting, where it just becomes very easy for a company to kind of give their final answer. And that's kind of it. They're a bit like the adult in the conversation. They can just kind of look down at you and they don't have to kind of engage with you. And it's not in their interest to acknowledge that you, you still have a grievance. And that used to really frustrate me. And then with products and services, which I've previously been unhappy with, I would find the email address of the person that was kind of highest up the chain that could sort it out. And I would send them, you know, a a genuinely heartfelt email. And often it would get some action off the back of it. So there was the kind of power of that, which sort of cross-merged with the pranks, I guess. It turned out that after feeling that I couldn't go any further with with the dispute I had with my bank that I kind of knew I wouldn't get any financial resolution, but I thought I could maybe have, I guess, the last laugh. <laughs> I think it was, you know, some of this was slightly ego-driven later on, and I'll happily admit that. I think it was a reaction to me feeling frustrated by my career in some ways. But yeah, the, this high street bank disagreement, I decided, right, I'm going to basically prank you. I'm going to pretend that I'm the chairman of this bank. Now, the chairman seemed a good character to pick because they always seem to speak in fairly effusive terms and not really have to, they can kind of say everything but nothing at the same time. So I kind of wanted to have this slightly hammy, overly ornate language that I was going to use. That was kind of the juxtaposition, I think, against the um, what I was, which was, you know, a tattooed... <laughs> slightly angry designer so kind of mixing those two together seemed like a beautiful mix for me and he fell for it I pretended I was the chairman we had a fairly quick exchange back and forth it had a good cadence to it I was at the time lying on my bed watching Netflix so there was no kind of huddled person in his uh, grand's basement and it was all fairly sort of relaxed and all super easy to do just on my phone you know create a, a gmail account job of you know a minute and a half maybe put the display name in and off you go. And it was fortunate for me that, because at the time, obviously I was, I was wondering how it would play out. I was trying to build a mental picture so at least I had something to kind of work with. It was after a, a big event for the banking question. So I wondered, would he actually be sat next to the chairman at the time? Would that kind of rumble it straight away? So there was always a kind of educated guess thing that I had to do. There was a lot I didn't know, but I kind of worked with, what I did. And yeah, it, it kind of worked. And the next day I, <laughs> I sent it to the Financial Times and they thought it was funny and they ran it and quite a few other publications picked up on it. And that kind of sowed the seed, I guess, of you've kind of done this first prank, people have liked it. Should I do a second one? And being a very dedicated and mildly obsessive person, <laughs> I thought, you know, let's let's explore this a little further. Again, not in a malicious way, but let's see if it is this easy a few different places were you ever surprised with any that did come back or was it a surprise every time i think after the first couple of different banks um that replied to me because i always assumed that it would just be locked out dead uh, by technology you know if somebody was doing this display name deception or if it was even an external email then it would kind of come into a sandbox or it would be flagged up or there'd be some way of it being highlighted and then mitigated but it seemed that wasn't the case and I thought well this seems like a bit of a flaw obviously in certain cases you could wonder what the the use of it would be but we're reaching a stage where even the smallest of details you know can make a huge difference you know we're 
140 character tweet from a certain person can cause mayhem. So it, it, we're reaching a, a stage now, I think, where the security of emails is as important as it's ever been. If you can take over a narrative in a time of confusion, you could cause some real damage, especially if it's a rogue nation state or somebody with the ability to do this persistently and endlessly, which I'm sure some of them do. It fast became less of an ego trip and more of a, this is not, this is not right. I shouldn't be able to do this. You know, I've only been doing this for a month. <laughs> it shouldn't be this easy, but it kind of is. Uh, at what point did you really decide that kind of enough was enough and you you needed to stop um i think the biggest prank as such and the one that sort of got the most coverage i would say is the one against the white house and, and probably rightly so i guess i don't think it was the most complicated it wasn't the the one that i was i thought was the kind of cleverest in terms of techniques i was kind of using or experimenting with to try and build trust with that initial contact email my mo before that was basically make contact with that first email, get them to believe that I am the person or to view differently, to have them not think I'm not the person and then take it on a kind of weird tangent. I'd often invite them to parties with stuffed tigers and this kind of thing. And because to, to me, just having a back and forth, yeah, can you print this document out or, you know, something like that wouldn't have the, the slightly humorous element to it. So it was always about pushing the extremes of what somebody would believe as far as I could sometimes too far and you know they just kind of didn't reply but yeah the the White House had performed a prank on Ian Levy who's an extremely talented man that works for the NCSC so I kind of wanted to do his I wasn't successful by the way <laughs> and I have seen him since I've been down to the NCSC we wrote a blog together you know it's, it's all kind of good it was really nice for me I think that the English sort of uh, cyber community embraced me and didn't take it too much to heart. I think on the US side, especially if you've done a prank against the White House, there was there was sort of no no outreach at all. There was no, I heard nothing about it. But I think that's one of the problems that I see with cyber defense, that there is a kind of ego involved and there is a kind of stigma against becoming a victim of it. And, you know, we need the opposite of that. We need people to stick their hand up the second that they realize even if they've sent three messages and they've signed into a dodgy uh, phishing website you know you want them to still feel confident to come forward and, and let you know because you know that could save you millions of dollars or pounds or whichever currency you're using but yeah to drag myself back so the white house one tom bossert he was the homeland security advisor to trump so he was kind of top of the tree in terms of um safety of the america so, yeah, I pretended I was uh, Jared Kushner, President Trump's sort of, I, I don't know what he does, to be honest. I think he's an assistant or something. I have no idea what the, the job title is there, yeah. F fairly senior, though, I think. Yeah, I think he's he's helping out with the COVID thing at the minute, isn't he? Being an expert at that at the minute. So I'm going to get political, which I don't do anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I kind of, Tom Bosser, he seemed like the the best person that I, I would kind of be a little bit proud of myself if I could kind of trick him. And I, I sent an email through and then kind of forgot about it. And then he replied. And in it, I'd asked him again, I'd asked him to a party. I think because I never go to parties, I felt like I should invite lots of people who I know will not come. So the, the hook that I used in that, because this was the, the nub 
of the whole of social engineering framework in my mind, which is the the relevancy of the message. You know, why is it relevant to the person that's reading it? Why should they care about it? Why is it so specifically relevant that your head subconsciously goes, this isn't a malicious message? We're kind of used to phishing messages being a little bit vague and a little bit blurry around the edges. And to put in just a small fact which rings true and which possibly could only really link the two people, you know, that's a brilliant thing. That's a powerful thing I've since learned. And I basically put in Tom Bossett's name and Jared Kushner's name into a Google News search. And I think two articles down, there was reference to a trip uh, to Iraq that they'd made together. So I kind of pivoted off that and thought, well, they must have eaten in Iraq. I don't know if they ate at the same places. It's possible. So I just kind of referenced, you know, the party will have uh, hopefully be good as the food which we ate in Iraq. So I didn't specifically say they both <laughs> together i kind of generalized it a bit but there was that sort of reference there was that hook that thing that hopefully diffused the sort of subconscious bomb waiting to go off that says this is a hoax and he sent me his personal email address as well which is a nice little cherry on the top and yeah i guess that really showed me that it was kind of scary out there how easy this was and how some people in charge of a huge amount of security and wealth and you know safety would be this liable to an invasion into their arteries of communication. Anthony Scaramucci, another person at the White House that I did a slightly longer prank on in terms of exchanges back and forth, at one point, because I had contacted him as, as kind of two characters, I didn't really know which one he would engage with, two real characters. And as I pushed him harder as well as previous, he actually emailed my other character <laughs> to ask if he was about. So he was kind of reaching out to get some sage advice i think from that would have been john huntsman jr i think you know he's like asking are you about now uh, and i was like oh shit because i had them both in different apps i think one was in outlook the other one was perhaps in mail.com so that, that was a slightly bizarre experience that i had this administration official that was sort of pinned be- well not pinned but you know bouncing between two people that i decided to pretend being uh, you know from another country sat on a bed watching a shark documentary on netflix so yeah the power and the possibilities for bad things was always a bit of an eye-opener for me i must say do you think that this kind of way into security i'm not saying the other people should try it but do you think this way in to a security career has kind of given you an insight into how these social engineering tricks and you know elements work. Yeah, I think I think it's given me more more than I even realised as time's gone on and I've learned more about the industry and about email security specifically because at the beginning I knew I was catching up for not having you know a, a ten year or twenty year career before me in this industry, so I fast realised it was so big and varied that it was pointless to try and become good or proficient at more than a few things. It was interesting that as that's developed, how the social engineering has developed because you know we do actively engage with bad actors and stuff, people that are cyber criminals, I guess, and whilst some of them may not be you know as intelligent or not seem as intelligent or not have as good a grasp at English perhaps as a Wall Street bank CEO. The social engineering is different. It, it's it's a more nuanced thing and it's a more done with team objectives in mind rather than kind of what will personally make me laugh. And it's small things like, you know, if you're engaging with a scammer, I don't want to make them better at what they're doing. If they're making spelling mistakes or, you know, if they're being too pushy, 
you know, if they're sending like four messages into me in the space of 10 minutes saying, have you made the transfer, have you made the transfer? I kind of want to work around that and, and leave that in because that kind of behavior in another person's inbox might be the thing that highlights it to them as being, you know, malicious. That might set off the alarm bells for them. So there is a kind of a real depth to it once you start digging through and a real kind of a lot more strategy. I think my pranks at the time were just, you know, they were a firecracker. They were kind of done and gone in 12 hours. So that's a very accurate time scale, isn't it? Sometimes it was more than 12 hours. I did one with Katie Hopkins that went on for a week. And, and yeah, I think the, the previous experience is, is super useful. I'm kind of shocked sometimes how useful it can be. It was only a four-month period I was doing the pranks over, but it was a really intense uh, learning experience. And I did every single prank or engagement. There was something that I took away from it. Um, coming to work at Agari, it was nice to see how um, the technology could do some of the heavy lifting. Because I always say it like this, because if – Somebody works for Company X and they will potentially get into trouble for missing or for, you know, putting their details into a phishing email. So you then put in the responsibility on them to maintain a clean sheet to not ever let that happen. But the only way they can do that, it's like having a, a customs checkpoint and you say to them, right, I want no illicit stuff to come through that checkpoint. The only thing you can do to, to ensure that is to actually pull apart everything that comes through and check. Otherwise, you're not giving them the tools that they need to to be able to proactively do that. You know, they're always going to be on the back foot. So the technology has to do all the checking that you won't let them kind of do, if that makes sense. It's only that way that you can have a fairly secure email ecosystem. And passwords, I'll finish on passwords because that's one of the main things as well, which... Obviously, I've changed some of my behaviors since I've got involved in InfoSec and passwords and the non-repetition of passwords and using passwords that weren't ones that I could remember. I think that's the kind of pivot point for me now and adding two-factor to maybe not every account, but, you know, to certain, especially like my main email account and things, you know, do not take the default settings in anything as the ones you should stick with, you know, in social media, do look through every setting in there and, and check that it's right for you because they want you to connect with everyone you may not want that so you know turn off the it can view my contacts and pair me and things like this so take a little bit of time i think that's the one thing that i've changed because you know it's, it's my data and i may as well take a little bit of responsibility for for what it gives out that's some great advice i think that's a, a great place to say thanks very much for joining oh no problem So has anyone been using the ask one password hashtag on Twitter uh, these days? They have. Yes. So Tom on Twitter asks, I'm curious. I see y'all are starting to use Rust. What considerations did you take when using something so relatively new in production? So nice question. So this one's interesting. And Rustam, one of our founders, and I were talking about it just yesterday. Rust was introduced back in 2010. And so it's been around as a programming language for a decade now. And it's not new. It really isn't new, but it, it, it also is not something that has been in the mainstream. However, I think that people would be surprised at how many products, how many apps they run on their computers today actually have Rust components in them. Uh, Firefox, if you use the Firefox browser in particular, like there's huge swaths of that that are written in Rust. And so what considerations did we take into account? There was quite a bit. 
performance of, of the language itself or, or performance of the programs that are written in the language, in particular, uh, memory safety, thread safety, things like that. These are all things that Rust really excel at. We also looked at ease of use. You know, some, some languages are just easier to write in than others. Rust, I would say, is probably on the, the harder side, not so much because of the syntax, but because the compiler is very, very particular about what it allows you to do. And so in the beginning, you spend a lot of time sort of arm wrestling the compiler and usually losing until you get something that works. The other thing that we took into consideration was the size of the standard library. You know, when we look at something like Go or Swift, there's a huge standard library there with a lot of lot of sort of built-in functionality. Rust is actually on the on sort of the other end of the spectrum where their standard library is pretty small. And so you end up using a lot of third-party, uh, what are called crates or, or modules to do some of the, the more basic things. Like even networking is, is sort of, you know, you have a, a bevy of third-party crates that you could you could use to bring in stuff like that. So that's something that we do think about when considering a you know the use of a language. And each one of those things brings with it its own challenges. Like if you go with a language that's easier to write, maybe it's less memory safe. If you go with something with a smaller standard library, you know, you have to do a little bit more due diligence of, of evaluating the safety of using a third-party framework for for that same thing. But in the end, like it's the language is cool. Like I've been, you know, writing some stuff in it and it's it's really neat. Like you can do some really cool safe, fast things with it. The other thing is that it it allows us to target all the platforms that we deploy on. So that's really the biggest consideration for us when we're looking at targeting iOS, Android, Mac, Windows, our web app, our web extensions. Each one of those things is, you know, the language has to be able to, to be built and run on those platforms. And so any languages that couldn't were, were dropped off immediately. A lot of different things come into play when you're building something as complex as a one password app that that you need to think about when you're when you're picking a language. Nice, I like that. Let's let's do the let's do the, the last one too. Yeah. Unless you're sick of hearing me talk. <laughs> <laughs> I Colsteran on Twitter says, "What's the best way to set up on kids' devices? Have the family plan and thinking of making a shared kids vault for the logins needed for school, etc." would be on a shared kid's iPad with master password known by mum and dad. So any tips for them there? Yeah. So we have an iPad that is used, that the kids use for schoolwork. And uh, originally I had my sons and daughters, you know, like accounts and everything set up into, in the shared family vault. But that got annoying as we started adding more of them as there was, you know, because there was like a Google login for my daughter and they both have Apple IDs and stuff like that. And so eventually, or recently, what I ended up doing was creating a, a vault specifically for my son's uh, information and another vault specifically for my daughter's information. And I set up one password on their devices to show those vaults by default uh, instead of like the normal family vault. It is still using... I think it's, I have it set up for with my account. I'm probably going to add my daughter to our 1Password family account instead and give her her own password and then give her access to just the vaults that she needs so that she doesn't get access. Like right now, if she were to open up 1Password and auth with Touch ID, she'd get like all the banking information and everything else. So <laughs> maybe not necessary. So I should, I should really go and, and tune that down. But yeah, having a separate vault set up for them is a good move and seems to work really well because they can, on the iOS device, they can log in using the quick type keyboard, you know, the uh, one password autofill uh, support there. And it seems to work really nice. well. Nice. Some good advice. Thanks. Shall we move on to real or not real to close us up? Yeah. Yes. But also this segment really sort of gives me agita. Like I, I just, <laughs> nothing makes me question myself 
to my core, like this segment is what I'm finding. And I don't, I don't necessarily enjoy that. <laughs> There's a level of interest, self-introspection here that I'm not mentally prepared for. I'm also not very well equipped to read this word. I have been practicing this all week, so I'm going to give it a go. Oh, okay. So, are you ready? Hippopoto monstros esquipt aliophobia is the fear of very long words. It's not. <laughs> it would be weird to have a, a fear, which is the thing itself, right? Yeah. It would be, yeah. This is the fear of very large animals. <laughs> of hippos. Because it's a hippo monstros. That's correct, yes. I'm going to say this is the, the fear of very long words. Because I, I think the person who was making a really long word was like, yeah, I'm afraid of this thing. <laughs> oh, look, I found it. So we're going divided. Matt's going real. Rue's going not real. That's correct. Yeah, we're not, we're not usually divided on this. No. No. So this is, in fact, real. And yes, very ironic. That is one of the <laughs> longest words in the English vocabulary. So the term describes a social phobia of long words. I mean, that's a weird thing to be afraid of. Can we agree on that? That's just a strange thing to be afraid of. I don't think any fears are really rational. No. No, that's true. Some more than others. This one, less so. But still. Yeah. Can we just admire, you know, my pronunciation of it, though? It was really good. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry. You want you want credit for that? <laughs> well done, Anna. Yeah. Some of the, I've been practicing it all week. Some of the best work I've heard in a long time. Oh, thank you. So good job. And on that note, I think we can say, love you, Rouge. <laughs> love you too, Matt. Love you, Anna. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.